Dr. Coons. We were just talking about movies impacting my psyche as a child of Generation X and a trueborn. Like yeah. in the heated end of let's give our children the TV, but the internet isn't here yet. Uh, before then, we're sucking on the bottle of the iPhone, right? But raised in uh, movies, movies, movies are everything. And, you know, Star Lord in. Uh, the Marvel series, which may not mean much to you, but he's a kid who's raised on movie references, and his character within the series is basically always referencing other movies for himself. Yeah. And right. I find that's, in fact, me a lot more than I like. And what I don't know is how much of this is me being programmed to think a certain way. I don't know how much of this is me being programmed to walk a certain direction in my life. And that's where it really starts to bother me. When I start to say, how have these stories crafted by people I don't know determined what I have done the last 20 years? As opposed to, say, stories that I wanted to choose to follow or stories my parents intended to have me follow. Because I'm pretty sure the cable TV was not just what they intended me to see. Right? Yeah, right, uh, I found right, right. a lot of stuff. So I don't know. What are your thoughts about that beyond what we were just talking about to use that as our, our intro today? Yeah, I think that when you're thinking about film, and we said this when we talked about David Lynch, is that it is, a, it is incredibly powerful as a medium in a way that words in fiction writing are are not and that's something to do with how it appears to be real even when you know and it presents itself as uh, fiction it still has a power i think to captivate that mimics reality so effectively that it takes over your life and your sense of personal development or what events have meant or what words mean in your life such that people walk through life experiencing it as a kind of constant reference to something else it's like a language which, yeah which is a weird which is a weird sort of alienation mm -hmm. that everything in my life is somehow was already done to someone else in something that i watched and so now my life becomes a kind of a replay or an acting out and enacting of that other thing that someone else has already constructed which if you think about this theologically is extremely strange because theologically Generally, almost any religion is going to say that your life is an outworking of the will of God or the gods. And if modern people understand their lives as an outworking of movies, then their gods are the script writers well, and the directors and the executive producers. Stone. We've been so on this. Like you're looking at a body, an image, a physical thing. That's right. going to tell you what to be. And the old prescriptions against worshiping images, take God out of it and be just a materialist for a second. They at least understood the power right. of moving minds, right? Yeah, And, right, and right, now right. we've just sat down and let it tell us who we are or our kids. I'm right. in the generation yeah. that was told as a kid who I am by this stuff. They yeah. sell my independence at Walmart, you made me think. And that's exactly the, the, the scary point on a media ecology point. What TV requires you to do is suspend your belief. You must stop believing something and believe something else, especially if it's like a fun movie. You must right. let go of your skepticism. So it trains you to go beyond what is real and assume it for a while and then try to go back to reality. And the assumption that you can go back to reality is, well, you know the old phrase about assumptions and you and me. <laughs> Leave it at that. And I, I, I think it I think screens also are capable of producing 
a unique passivity. And you yeah. know that you know the difference if you've ever, you know, read a large, complicated novel and then also watched a film, maybe of the same novel. It's not only that, you know, the movie has to be less complex than the book because of time constraints, et cetera. It's also that when you are reading, your brain is active in judging, assessing, constructing in a way that it just isn't with film. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love David Lynch, it happens even with David Lynch films. It's not about really the content of the movie specifically or primarily. It's really about the medium. And that medium is so incredibly powerful because it makes you passive. And that yes. passivity that we've been talking about sort of regarding political decisions, the future, how you think about what your life needs to look like in the years to come, that passivity is something that's inculcated when you are consuming what the screen gives you, which for a lot of us is basically our waking life at this point. It really is. Uh, I've been wrestling with the idea of drunkenness recently just because I had the thought that, you know, well, here's how I thought about it. It's like if Jesus came back and like woke everyone up, except for those who weren't paying attention, and I was deep in a good movie, where would I be? <laughs> how drunk am I at this moment? Regardless of what I held in me otherwise, right? How far yeah. gone is my conscience from my actual body? And yeah, not to say right. don't watch movies. That's what I'm saying. I'm trying to, to cause people to think about the power of these things. And then also, uh, I think you do have something right in your hands to fight back against the screen without having to give up the screen. And that is to, to take a couple notes, to write down things while you're watching a movie, to engage text on paper with the film while you watch. It'll change the experience. You can't be a couch yeah. potato. You actually have to use your brain and you have right. to use you know, your heart a little bit too. Um, it'll be good for you if you do it. Um, I'm on a kind of a blue light fast, so I haven't gone back to this yet. But when I go back to watching movies, which I probably will eventually, um, I will definitely be pen and paper in hand for sure. Yeah, yeah. So we want to talk about government intervention and quarantines in 1793. That's right. Yeah, well, because one of the things that we're trying to do here is that when you study the past, you realize how incredibly selective people's knowledge of the past is because it's derived from movies, but also how they choose to present things is incredibly selective. And that's in the nature of history writing. That's not like some, that's not a necessarily evil thing that they're trying to hide or something. But a lot of people don't know that in 1793, what was then the nation's capital and largest city, which was Philadelphia, was struck by a yellow fever epidemic, which at the time people believed that it came from what's now called Haiti, which was undergoing a sort of well, it's called a revolution, but let's just be honest, it was a race war. So blacks rose up against the colonial French government. They were trying, they were attempting to execute all whites on the island. And then after the whites, people who were mixed black and white. And so whites were Lovely. fleeing. Wow. Yeah. Whites were fleeing. So if you look up Haitian Revolution, you know, that's not the episode today, but you can look that up for yourself. I, I you know what? We have an email to talk about later about me yeah. interjecting, but you, you know, you got to deal with me. I'm here. I'm going to interject. This is so good. But like, <laughs> If you are an optimist on these kinds of things, yeah, you are just ignorant of history. This is what people do to each other. Please continue. Brutal. Yeah, well, and, and so what you have is people coming from Haiti into Philadelphia. It's a large port city. The other source, and this is historical research from the 20th century, early 21st century, is that the yellow fever may have come there on a slave ship from the west coast of Africa. Either way, what happens is that the nation's capital empties out in the late summer and early fall of 1793. Okay, now the government 
interestingly, and the reason we're talking about government intervention is because one of the th one of the possibilities that history opens up for you is that things could be completely different. At the time, the federal government is so small, it just leaves the city, except for <laughs> the Treasury Department, because the city because the nation's financial system relies on the Treasury Department, even in 1793, and they keep operating. Is that actually a bank as well? Is there like gold there? Uh, no. At, okay. at, at the time, I believe it's the Bank of North America. It's not at all as powerful as today's Federal Reserve. But for the purposes of the financial system throughout the United States, the Treasury Department stays open the entire time. So during the entire two or three months, let's say that this thing is raging and, you know, dozens of people are dying every day in some cases. And that's in Philadelphia. That's in Philadelphia. And people, they're not sure, they don't know exactly how it gets there or what causes it. There, there is massive disagreement. What I found really interesting, besides the fact that the government just leaves largely, city government takes some measures, but largely people just leave. So by some estimates, half the population leaves the city. There is a really big parallel to today in that gradually, even though it's not enforced, Right. So there's nothing there's nothing paralleling mask mandates or lockdowns. People gradually start doing it. So they begin to cover their faces in public. They begin to not talk to each other at all. There's an account written in 1794. So the year after by a man who's a publisher in Philadelphia named Matthew Carey. And he says handshakes became unheard of. So what's interesting is a lot of this stuff that is sort of now enforced over time became normalized in Philadelphia. And that's partly because people could see people who couldn't leave the city for whatever reason could see others dying in front of their eyes. That is kind of different than a lot of our experience. And you were talking about this last time of COVID. Yeah. So that's a big jump, though, for, for some people maybe to make. Uh, so just to recircle around it, 1793. Yeah. Philadelphia, a disease from offshore, connected to race wars. How fun. But the point is, it, it begins killing large numbers of people in Philadelphia, which at the time is the U.S. capital. Yeah, uh, the U.S. government city. leaves except for the money because the spice must flow. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then those who remain, the, who are maybe what you might call the middle class, they're intellectual, but they can't afford to leave or don't leave. I don't know why they're there. They're there. And they are noting or they have historical documents of their own notes and whatever where we can see that some of the practices that we're doing today to pres preserve us from COVID are, uh, are what they adopted without anyone telling them to do it because the overseers were gone. The overseers are like, we're going to die. We're out of here. Sorry, you guys. <laughs> you know, yeah. Take yeah. our taxes and go. And so um, they began to do these social distancing practices, but that was a native response that humans are observable to do anywhere there's a pandemic because when you see people dying, you hide. That's what you do, right? And yeah. when you made the final leap, which I, I'm also one to do, it's like, well, that's interesting because today they're making us do this. And I'm not seeing people die like that. Yeah. Yeah. I know of, uh, I got two or three anecdotes of deaths that are maybe COVID connected in my immediate mm -hmm. person's vicinity. I recognize the random strangeness of this thing when it gets a hold of some metabolisms. And I've got no question about that. You should probably take a risk assessment and consider all sorts of things, zinc, vitamin D, a little more meat in your diet. Uh, but, but that all being said, right, the, the idea that we should have to right now be hiding from something that's 
akin to Ebola, right? Uh, is and the, what we're doing right. mandated is a very different reality than before. And in a sense, you see a complete ob- opposites. You have no government and protection yourself. Here we have all government forcing it, and we don't see we don't see the real results in real time. And so, why would we not right. question this, right? And I think right. that's that's your point. It's, it's reasonable for a common guy like me to question this. Yeah, it's also it's also kind of obvious if you look at a couple other parallels that the wealthy, for instance, will always be fine because they can go somewhere else. Right. That right. the issue the issue, and this is something I I want to talk about in a future episode with with business and the size of businesses and how they're affected is that the wealthy can always go elsewhere and be received there. So they have another home or they have somewhere else they can go. One of the big issues that the middle and the lower classes in Philadelphia face at this time is that they are physically excluded from almost everywhere else. So ships from Philadelphia can't offload in New York or Baltimore. Right, right, right. And even if you try to just walk out of the city, there are many towns, even close by, like Chester, that will not let you in if you're coming unclean, from Philadelphia. Unclean, throw rocks yeah. at them. It's Wuhan ground right. zero, right? And you know, right. You know, similar kind of stay away. But I, I, I mean, one of the one of the things that is very different is that quarantine is imposed on people who may be sick, right? That's very different from now, where a lockdown imposes quarantine on somebody who is not sick, right? Right. So that's that's an enormous difference between then and now. Is that there there is a fear growing over time of people who may be sick today everyone is treated as if he were sick and quarantined in a way that then only happened to people under suspicion of sickness. Right, right. Guilty until proven innocent uh, right. in a, a questionable set of circumstances. Uh, and it's, I don't remember where I saw this. There was a whole list of terms that are being used by mainstream left and right that mm-hmm. ought to be right. just used differently. And and the one was so lockdown, quarantine, it's called house arrest to some level. And certainly in a <laughs> yeah, number right, of places, right, right. it really is the yeah. way it is. Um, yeah. There's a certain amount of freedom you have, and then there's not. We've been told to stay home. And right. uh, so, yeah, from there then, I mean, this isn't really the last time this happens in the U.S., uh, 1918. No, not at all. No, because, well, because after 1793, a lot of, a lot of cities think, okay, we're fine. This is over. It actually recurs in 1798. It happens in other cities in different times. And one of the things that becomes kind of standard practice that will apply to 1918 as well is the notion of having quarantine hospitals, among which probably the most famous quarantine hospital is Ellis Island. So they're mm-hmm. both in processing of immigrants, but the big complex that's built there is for people under suspicion of being sick. And you can if you go back and you look at records like on Ancestry, if your ancestors came over at that time, you can find they'll write down like well or appears, you know, and this sort of thing. And that that idea that you're going to quarantine the sick is something that gets a lot of hospitals on the outskirts of these major port cities built. What happens in 1918, which a lot of people know about and we've referenced before, let me just kind of narrate the sequence and I want to talk about San Francisco because I find it fascinating. But 1918, um, this is the Spanish flu then, right? This is the Spanish flu. Yeah. And it's called the Spanish flu because Spain, being a neutral country in World War I, had much greater, let's say, freedom of press coverage inside the country. 
And it was believed, this is interesting, media shaping perceptions. It was therefore believed by many people that the, that the illness, because it was covered more extensively, its progress in Spain, huh. a lot of people believed that it came from Spain. Yeah, right. Makes sense. Which is the opposite of the case. And, and somewhat famously, the very young, I mean, I think he was in his early, th- I mean, I feel vain saying he's very young. He's in his early 30s, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, it is true. It is not true. true. No, it's not young true. Young pup, Doctor uh, Kuntz. Yeah, right. Is is that the the king of Spain, who was maybe thirty three or thirty four, actually became very sick. Hmm. And so, one of the things that's very strange about the nineteen eighteen nineteen nineteen flu epidemic is that it's not killing disproportionately the, the very young and the very old. It's killing disproportionately people in the prime of life and right. like 19 year olds. Right, right. Which again is a very different thing from the current reality uh, if we want right. to distinguish them, yeah? Oh, totally. Yeah. Compl- I mean, totally. And I, I, I think I mentioned before that, that some people believe, some historians believe that this was brought to the Western front of World War I by Chinese railroad workers. I tend not to believe that. I think it's kind of convenient, but it ignores the fact that the first cases occur in army camps in different parts of the United States, and maybe, first of all, in Kansas, okay? Hmm. So what's weird about this epidemic is that it begins in not just in a specific kind of installation, army bases. What? It begins- No, wait. Yeah. Yeah, Okay. And it, it, it- but that it doesn't come from like a port city. So we <laughs> talked last time about travel and how travel is a problem. And you can really see that in like 1793. Like, All right. So I'm just going to jump way ahead. You did it earlier. Tell me it now. So what you're talking yeah. about is a potential early U.S. Think Hydra inside the U.S. development of chemical weaponry for World War One that didn't go so well. Yeah, right. Well, because World War One is biochemically a complete, it, it's, it is a complete disaster. They're trying things, it, right? They're trying everything. Yeah, they're trying it. And there yeah. are things that are outlawed after World War One. that, <laughs> you know, whatever, however you feel about the League of Nations and then the UN or whatever, you should be happy at least that some people agreed this was just too evil yeah, to even Over the used. top, guys, over the top. Let's not fight like that. Let's be gentlemen and not gas each other. Jeez. So, yeah, and I mean, I, I mean, I don't have this connection to COVID, but I have this connection to chemical weaponry. Uh, I have an I have an ancestor that died of you know just basically incurable lung complications two years after he came well, home. Big and pharma it, and, and its impact on like, American health is a yeah. whole nother discussion. I'm afraid. Uh, so, I want to hear about this anti mask league of San Francisco. That sounds okay. like a you call it a real thing. That calls. Back when I played Magic: The Gathering, if you played the right card at the right time, <laughs> the guy across the table would say, "Now that's a thing." That's a thing. The anti-mask league has to be. How do we start these? It, 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 well, it was a thing. And because the response is that eventually this, this virus, which is strangely, particularly dangerous to fighting age men, I don't think coincidentally. You become, conspiracy theorist. It's I know, ridiculous. Yeah, for sure. Right, right. I just, yeah. You I'm probably just telling spend you, time on Twitter. I do. I'm on, I'm on Twitter. I'm on internet. Forums. Continue, it's continue. I don't want to distract horrible. you. Your stories are good. I listen. Is that, is that what you get are a series just like today of locally variable responses. And one of these responses is in the fall of 1918, a mask mandate, a public mask mandate in the city of San Francisco. Okay, so watch how local this is, because this is not Gavin Newsom. 
mandating something for the entire state of California, let alone Joe Biden mandating something for the entirety of the United States. It's this local that at the ferry terminal in San Francisco, the Red Cross will sell you for a couple cents a mask so that you can abide by the mask mandate in San Francisco. What does that mean? That means in the East Bay, there was no mask mandate. Okay. <laughs> so when you get into San Francisco, it also means month, someone, hold on, it also means someone set up a shop to oh, yeah, profit yeah. on the whole thing and well, how much sure. of your, of your control of where and when I just, I give the elite a little too much credit, I guess. Like, like every, well, I guess I mean, the ev- shop was run by the people who made the laws. That's what I'm saying. Every war and every disaster is like this. I mean, somebody's going to make money. I mean, it happened in 1793 because certain people believe that if you hung certain herbs around your neck, you would be preserved from the yellow fever. They, there was also a belief among some that the blood of people who had come from Haiti, black or white, that their blood, if like put on you or transfused cool. into you, would preserve you. So, so people always stand to make money. And I mean, I guess the Red Cross making money, I guess, I don't know. So it's a hyper-fragmented, too... it's a hyper-fragmented or very localized mask mandate. Totally. Then... And for a month, it was for a month. A month. But a it doesn't month. go well. It doesn't go well because San Francisco was a different place in 1918. San Francisco, like Seattle and Portland, were founded by Yankees moving across the top of the United States. Minneapolis, Milwaukee are similar. And so the population is not maybe as left wing then or progressive didn't mean what it means now. Right, right. And a significant element of that sort of Yankee progressivism is a ferocious attachment to civil liberties. Can you can you define that though? So when you say just just oh, this is tough. Yeah. The left left doesn't mean now what it yeah. did then. Just give us what yeah, it means so, now and what it did yeah. then in short. Okay, so so what it means now is that our our, our left really throughout the western world is significantly infiltrated by and and influenced by and convinced by Marxism Leninism. Yeah. After the Second World War, especially. But what you can find on what was then called the left, especially prior to World War II in the United States, and this is this goes to a figure that I've mentioned before, Charles Beard. But you'll so it, it's almost like a sort of indigenous American left is that it's left in the sense that they want forms of social change, like women's suffrage or prohibition. But it's not like our present day left in that they they also want uh, civil liberty to say whatever you want in public and do whatever you want. So it's a sort of, it's indigenous in the same sense that like Henry David Thoreau or Ralph Waldo Emerson are not conservative, but they they want you to do th- to be able to do things that, to do whatever you want. So let me they suggest are- let me suggest that the modern mixture that you see going on on the West Coast then uh, is the the Yankee reaction to Puritanism and needing yes. to throw it off, yeah. marrying the Marxist reaction to World War II. And that's what's going on over there. Yeah, uh, well, I, I, yeah, I think, I think it, is, it is a reaction to Puritanism aligned with a despising of av- everyday people who will be called different things in order to demonize them in different countries that Marxism has. Because Marxism, and I, I, I don't feel any irony in saying this, Marxism is a conspiracy theory about history. Yeah, it's never right. been proven. It's never worked but it's very powerful as a narrative. Right, right. It's a good okay. myth. It's a and, good myth. And yeah. so, 
so San Francisco in 1918 is, is, is not a Marxist place, except among certain uh, Scandinavian immigrant groups. That's a whole different story. So, but it probably has something is, to do with Minneapolis and Lutheranism, I would guess. Yeah, no, it, 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 I mean, <laughs> call me crazy. Yeah, let, we need to do the episode where we just explain how politically awful Lutheranism is. But yeah. yeah, anyway, so, okay, so the leader of the Anti Mask League is Mrs. E.C. Harrington, who is also a suffragette. Huh. Okay. <laughs> and the issue, they, they, they have a two pronged critique of masks. One, and there were plenty of doctors in the anti-mask league. One is, you've heard it before, you're going to hear it again. Masks don't work. Yeah, right, right. That's what they said. Okay, masks don't work. It doesn't matter. Are you are you making that claim today, Dr. Coons? Uh, I mean, I I think that, I don't, I mean, I don't know. It's kind for of what? like. It's, you got to ask for what, right? What are we trying to use the yeah, mask for? Yeah, the, because I, th- I think the bigger issue is I, masks for me are a cope that of course our, our authorities are going to use so that they can keep us going in and out of certain businesses and keep certain economic things flowing. So right. of course they're going to mandate masks. Of course they are. And that's why the mask mandates are so much more widespread today because we're so much more urbanized than we were in the We're reliant upon these industries. If Walmart yes. goes down, then how are you going to get yes. your food? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, even in a city in 1918 of any size, you're still going to have people doing tons of gardening, for instance. So she they sets up the to... anti-mask league and they, and they, what? They, march? they set up the, anti- they, well, no, they don't march. They actually, this is common to Yankee politicking throughout American history. They, <laughs> they make a big stink in public. Okay. <laughs> Which is they'll go to city council meetings. They'll call for the mayor to be repealed. Like the fact that you can repeal Almost anyone in California is a result of this kind of Yankee progressivism. And so they are successful in getting the mandate repealed after a month. Because they say it, masks don't work and Americans should not have to wear masks because the government tells them to. That's right. And I may just skip that one by distracting you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there's your ideological bent toward independence, freedom, all that kind of right. stuff. Right. Um, right. Which we've noticed before is often ethnically charged as well as a as a historical movement right so that yeah, tells you i, 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 I it, it is it is not coincidental that america which is an anglo-saxon derived if not at this point demographically descended country has a greater attachment to civil liberties in personal behavior than maybe some than maybe like japan so I, it's not an accident i'll display some of my ignorance here but i'm imagining that chinatown's in san francisco by this point Mm-hmm. And what is the reaction with regard to that history? Or do you know? I mean, do they re- react the same way? Do they just kind of endure it and move on? I, I, I don't know. I'm going to provide you with a guess, though, based on what I know about how they responded to the earthquake and the fires after the earthquake, which would be like 12 years earlier in the same city. And that is that, like a lot of immigrant communities and Lutherans, honestly, in 1918, wouldn't be any different. And the Amish are no different today. If, they're, if they kind of are only able, because of recent immigration and linguistic isolation, if they really only talk to each other, their reaction is not going to be governed by what the mainstream, which is English speaking, is doing. And so I don't know in the case right. of 1918. Well, that's just it. But, they have a subculture, yeah, right? Yeah. Right. Exactly. If you have a legitimate subculture, 
you're just going to handle life differently than other people that are still governed by what the newspaper says or whatever. And this is an important thing for you if you're listening to A Brief History of Power with Two White Guys is to realize that if you are white, you have no subculture. You don't. Own it. You're, Own you're it. Yeah, you're certainly not allowed to. That doesn't mean that you couldn't form one, but it means that currently you have not been given one. And it's tough to form one without buying it at Walmart. That will be challenging. Now, myself, <laughs> I right. like Christianity. Yeah. It's old. That's a thing. But, yeah. uh, you know, you're right, though. Uh, men of integrity will have to develop their rule to live by in this age should they desire right. to live and live right. well. Um, right. All right. So. The anti-masculine works after a month. Are we to take a lesson from this, to, like for us today? I, mean, I don't. I don't see us forming the anti-masculine more than the Twitter already has. I mean, Parlor exists as the anti-masculine in a certain right. way. Um, I, I, okay, so I would I would say like the 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 whole issue here is that in 1918, and this is something Charles Beard talks about when he talks about American history. Again, kind of a Yankee progressive, is that. Uh, the world prior to World War One is vastly freer in personal behavior than anyone who wasn't alive then can imagine. And this relates to something, I mean, I think I talked last time about the nostalgia that a lot of people who are descended from Eastern European Jews have for certain kind of late 19th century, early 20th century time periods in certain, you know, like Vienna there is a definite nostalgia you can hear in these kind of Yankees writing in the thirties, forties, 1950s, Harry Elmer Barnes is like this talking about this world before the government got as big as it got and income tax had to be paid and all kinds of things. And so part of, part of the issue here is that what I would have to tell you to do is probably not something that you want to do or you're accustomed to doing. And it goes against the passivity that the screen inculcates. And that is you have to force your government to be representative of your thoughts. Right. That talking on the internet has its limits and also complaining or, th or thinking in your mind, I don't like this on some level doesn't matter because the thing that you can see with the anti-mask league is that they force the government, even the public health authorities to be representative of what they think. Hmm. If you don't do that in public, in a public hearing or a public venue or something, it doesn't matter what you think that if you want civil liberties and the reason that Anglo-Saxon derived countries, not at this point, I mean, Australia and Britain have been, completely insane with their lockdowns. They're much less free than say Germany or France. But historically, the reason that it was this way is that in, in Anglo-Saxon countries going back to England with its history, people reserved the right to act up in public in a variety of ways in order to get what they wanted. If you don't reserve the right to kind of flip out, okay, you don't get to have those rights. Because in an emergency, those sorts of things will be taken away. It doesn't matter what is on paper in your country. In an emergency, lots of things will always be taken away. I reserve the right to go crazy. Yeah, right. I, you, you, you kind of have to. I, government by the people must be by the people. Yeah, You right. catch potato. You know, I mean, really, really. What <laughs> right, do you expect? Right. I've been sitting there all this time playing games thinking that was real. And now... It's like it got real outside real fast, didn't it now? So <laughs> right, work yeah. is hard, yes, but without it, the roof falls down. Right.
Right. So 1976, vaccines. Yeah. Oh, goodness. I've been pushing this one as a pastor. You really have to deal with pro-life issues when you think about these things. And it's been so hard to get good information these days. Do you know it's hard yep. to get good information these days? 1976, I probably got most of these vaccines, I imagine. Let's talk about them. That's, it's interesting. I don't know if you did. But I think what is interesting is that by 1976, the American population is much more docile than in 1918. So... People are eat flipping your out. Eat your Wheaties. People are <laughs> flipping out about wearing masks, not about getting vaccinated, because the flu, the influenza vaccine, doesn't get developed for more than a decade after. I mean, even just kind of trials, more than a decade after 1918. So it's interesting that by the 1970s, our reaction is already what it is today, where you get. And again, I don't know enough about this. I'm just I'm telling you what happened. The swine flu is located on U.S. Army bases in the United States in 1976. And a soldier at Fort Dix, New Jersey, dies while on like a multi-mile march. Okay. Yeah. And the public reaction, this is an election year. Gerald Ford is going to lose the election in November. Nobody's disputing that in 1976. He's going to lose to Jimmy Carter. But the public reaction Who was is, an outsider? An outsider? Yeah. Super outsider. Please continue. Yeah. Uh, it, the public reaction by 1976 isn't, no, don't make us do this. And there aren't mask mandates in 76. But the reaction is, we need to develop a vaccine, which is not the case earlier on. And the, the notion of the vaccine, like we talked about last time with the AIDS epidemic, is that suddenly you don't really have to talk about personal behavior mm -hmm. because you have a panacea. Yep. You have you have something that the doctor can give you that the government can help develop. And a lot of the, the controversy in 1976 is not about whether or not there's supposed to be a vaccine or anything. It's really about whether or not the government is going to allow uh, drug companies to charge as much as possible hmm. for this vaccine. And so there are problems because the vaccine is developed very, very quickly. There are cases everyone admits happened of nervous disorders that people who are given early versions of the vaccine develop. Hmm. So they don't, they don't develop swine flu, uh, not even a mild case, but they do develop a, a kind of nervous disorder called Guillain-Barre syndrome. You can look that up. Sounds um, great. Sounds great. But it's part of the reason that President Ford, he's still president in the fall of 1976, gets himself and his family vaccinated on television. <laughs> full circle to our screens the, the purpose of the screen is to inculcate things very powerfully images mm -hmm. what's what's important about this is most people have forgotten that this happened right but the estimate is that a quarter of the u.s population was vaccinated against the swine flu in 1976 and so what age bracket would that have been then if you said you know i was born 1978 you, so you, you say you don't think i would have gotten it no i don't think you would because they kind of stopped the vaccination program at about what they thought was a quarter of the U.S. population. Oh, interesting. Was it yeah. geographically located where they dispersed it? Not that I know of. Okay. I think they tried to spread it out, but, you know. And, 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 I, I, yeah. Has I anyone like to ever tested to see it. how any, like, right, you know, those, the various traumas or, or ongoing problems with American uh, sad health, have we ever tried to, you know, tie this to any of that? Any of the repercussions? Cancer? I, cancer just comes to mind because it's random, yeah. right? But yeah. um, I don't know. I think the bigger point is modern magic of the vaccine and the yeah. the flip 
from pre-World War II, pre-TV lifestyle, um, right. and like you, you know, don't tread on me in San Francisco to, <laughs> hey, give me my, yeah, right. give yeah. me my, give me right. my vaccine, give me my Soma, um, right. whatever it yep. might be that I might go on today. And I guess that's what's been most disturbing to me. So when I've got to voice my thoughts about this to people who are close to me, who I, I think I trust, yeah. I, what, what disturbs me most is the rush to avoid death. And if there's something that I had, uh, I wish I had said differently, again, I'm going to speak as a pastor for a second, but uh, I wish I had said differently that first weekend when we were in a lockdown here. Mm-hmm. I think I cared yeah. for people just fine. I think I told them about the resurrection, which I need to do. But I think I, I would have looked everyone in the eye and said, you need to be ready to die now. This is the wake-up call. Be ready to die now, and life's yeah. going to be fine. And that issue is bigger than just Christianity here. It's the reason we're searching for the modern magic pill, the vaccine, is we're unable to face death. Uh, I have enjoyed following pagans on Twitter who have discovered that freedom from fear of death gives them great veracity uh, yeah. and, and, and vivaciousness. And it's sad to me as a Christian, again, that I have to be inspired by pagans. Um, but, but at the same time, there's a brotherhood of man. I don't, I don't like that language. But there's a manhood element to this whole thing that also is coming out together here right and you, i jumped you too can, far but go ahead no but you can track it theologically because in 1793 the lutherans in philadelphia who have the largest congregation but also the quakers who are very socially important in philadelphia everyone's saying if people are dying this is a wake-up call for humanity we need to repent of our sins hmm. by 1976 almost nobody's saying right, right. I mean, i'm sure there i'm sure there were some independent baptists in the south saying something like that but I'm sure that the denomination right. you and I are in was not saying that no, in 1976. No. no, this could be God, but we'll stop it. Right. <laughs> you, know. you got it. Yeah, we're praying for a vaccine. You know, so then, that's, is that just kind of a come and go and whatever? 1976 is just also run, yeah. and now we move yeah, on. Yeah, and it, it it's kind of like how until 2020, nobody remembered that you know, like when Woodstock was happening, there was also a flu pandemic coming from Hong Kong at that time. So a lot of this stuff, it's interesting. And, and this is the way that even 1918 was talked about, even though the death toll was enormous worldwide. I mean, legitimately uh, in 1918, 1919, is that people tend to forget about really unpleasant things like this on a collective level. A generation comes, a generation goes, and many things continue to happen. But the the generation that's had a lot of summer never really believes winter is coming. And again, right. I hate to yeah. have my whole life be foreshadowed by what I've watched on HBO <laughs> but it, it it does seem to be a well-planted idea that we've been in the summer, a long summer. We are summer children, yeah. as I mm-hmm. think Young Bran has called in an early episode, children of the summer. And it's a different world. But I don't know. I mean, again, our church body you mentioned a moment ago, I don't want to call it names, but to be sure, we're not talking about this. We're not supposed to even. And maybe that's right. where we can go before we're going to hit some listener email, but Sure. I think you and I, I know I have for sure, but you have probably also by this point had people somewhere out in the internet world, either yourself or connected to you, saying Mm -hmm. that Lutheran pastors should not be talking about these things. And so maybe speak to that for a second here, and then we'll go into the emails. I think think there's a couple things behind that, and one of them has to do with a listener's question, uh, theologically phrased as like, why don't you guys talk about the devil? Well, huh. I think we do. I think we do all the time. I think the issue is that we're talking about how he is mediating mm. 
yeah. his work yeah. through people, institutions, events, narratives. Okay. So I think that's kind of all we do, honestly. And it's why sometimes uh, our content itself depresses me. Um, <laughs> not because it's bad or badly presented, but because it's, it, it's, it's about the workings of evil and the evil one in the world. Um, yeah. That's a lot of history. Yeah, it's, so, quite, it's quite awful. And with, with much wisdom comes much suffering, I believe. And yet, yeah, there's no and, reason and, not to be wise. And I think that that relates to like a direct answer to your question is that we are simply unaccustomed, certainly in our church, to talking about what is going on in life. Right. So when people are saying, well, I don't think pastors should talk about this or that, that means that I don't think pastors should talk about what occurs in daily life, yeah. which is which is not how Jesus talks about things occurring in his place and time. It's also not historically even how Quakers, let alone Lutherans, talked about things occurring right in front of everyone's face. So what you're saying is we need more sermon analogies and drama skits connected to like the, the images the people will understand because they're also – I'm just kidding. That's so inside baseball. Don't even chase it. Evil and good are approximate <laughs> realities though, right? That there yeah. is about being near and far, yeah. and, and that's very important to this. Okay, so we got a, a couple of emails here and plenty of yep. time to dig into them, and I'm going to go with the first, uh, which you've seen this one, and it's uh, I want to respond to this one because it's really dealing with me. Um, so it says, uh, you know, hey guys, I like Pat, Brief History of Power. I've listened to all 16 episodes. I really am glad you are doing it. I've learned a lot. But if you could allow the ideas to flow so it can be seen how they logically connect, it would be easier to share both the podcast and the ideas with others. When you, see it was plural a moment ago, now it became singular. When you interrupt Kuntz and break him off mid-thought, it breaks up the flow of the ideas and makes them hard to follow. I would bear with it, but I have heard the same thing from anyone I share the podcast with. I love the triangling in the email. I really, really do. Uh, bringing to bear named unnamed parties as a group against an individual with your point of view is a power tactic. I recommend not doing it to your friends and neighbors. Uh, but leaving that aside, here's the thing. This is my podcast, and I'm a weird dude with lots of thoughts, and I'm learning from Dr. Kuntz. And so if you'd like to come along for this ride, you're free. But I'm not going to bend over backwards to make it easy for you, because it's not easy for anybody to learn these things. So that, that's what I got. And Kuntz, if you'd like to maybe be the good cop on this one, uh, I'm sure he would like to be encouraged after I just said no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I mean, th this is something that I think this comes up in all kinds of venues. And I, it's partly because me not interrupting being, people? No, no, <laughs> it is because I am not, at least for our place and time, neurotypical, let's say. Yeah, I like um, that. I, I don't know if there's something wrong with me or it's something right with me or, or whatever, but Both. because I, yeah, right, because I, I think at length and express myself at length. Some people like that and some people have trouble following it. So this mm. comes up in my lectures it, and in it, what it means is that some people want to hear me talk for like 40 straight minutes. Yeah, right. Some people can't follow what's going on as I'm doing that for 40 straight minutes. And so being interrupted by questions is something that I allow in any venue that I'm doing. Right. Because it doesn't work for everybody. Right. And in order to get complex ideas and events out, you have to both have me talk sometimes for 15 minutes, which happens on our podcast. And sometimes I have to be interrupted. And that's that those things are both fine. And so let me let me yeah. put that together with something else. That's really good. So I also am a person who people like to listen to talk at length, two to three right. hours straight 
for some reason. <laughs> I And right. I don't mind doing it for some reason. Um, and what I happen to be really good at is I can translate stuff. I can hear something and I can put it in a new spin very, very quickly. And so yeah. that's where I think what I'm doing here is a, I'm creating a bridge for you, literally, where when I interrupt right. you, I'm going to either translate or I'm going to jump it further, which still is a form of translating, showing you how I'm learning from you. So you have two things you can learn from me in this. One, how to translate what he's saying, and the other one is how to take what he's saying and apply it in real time to your own information. But then right. Dr. Kuntz is developing on his own and behind the scenes in this more direct content that you might even be able to, like, say, read or, or buy and, like, study and right. that is coming so if, if that's yeah. what you're after and i think that's what you're after listener so please don't take me too um that they will come but all things to those who wait In especially lines catch it right so um <laughs> <laughs> anything else or should we move on no go ahead all right so let's see here uh lester says this uh i can't find the video uh, for last week's A Brief History of Power, did you censor it? Did YouTube censor it? If so, you should use a new YouTube, as I noticed others are uploading to both sites to avoid the censorship. So I want to have this just be something for you to talk about alt tech yeah. and alt, yeah. alt apps. Um, but the long and short is we only put some of these on YouTube. Um, it's a little extra right. work. It comes out ahead of schedule. Uh, and, and so that throws things off. It lets us be more direct. So if something's really, really, really important, we'll probably do that. Um, so that's right. why you can't find the video for every one of these. You do just have to long form listen, maybe take some notes. But in terms of NewTube or there's another one that's bigger than NewTube out there, uh, that some guy I don't even know has been uploading my videos there for like two years uh, and just, just repeating everything there. But these alt right. platforms, right? Do you do you go there? Do you stay where you are? Parlor, Twitter. I mean, I I think I think that as long as you can stay on what has the longest reach, you do. And the benefit of that is that it allows not just. I mean, I I think if someone's already committed, he'll migrate with you to D Live or BitChute or right, whatever. Right you need to go to after you, or, or he'll migrate with you to gab if you get quick or, or parlor or whatever, after you're off Twitter, that's not really the issue. The issue with staying on YouTube or Twitter or Facebook is so that you can pull in as many people as you possibly can, as long as you possibly can. Vision with a net. It, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, micro navigation though, or micro migration. So whenever you move, if you really move, you're not going to yeah. get, even all those who want to follow you because the current algorithms right. do not encourage people leaving or, or finding content right. elsewhere. In fact, they're right. always trying to have you find new content and lose the content you were following before. If, if I'm reading it right. So, all right. Um, I, I think it's a bigger discussion we could have in terms because, because each, each alt platform is going to be its own alt. Right. right. Actually, right. why don't we talk about this right here? So I pitched you an idea in a text message. Uh, I know you were mm -hmm. talking to people and stuff, but the idea was that, you know, I've I've heard heard people, and I know you've probably heard people saying, "Well, if, if Koontz is on Twitter and looking at Twitter, why doesn't he have an account?" And you know, leaving that behind, uh, the Mad <laughs> Christian Discord is a place yeah. where there is a channel that is devoted to a brief history of power. And right. one of my thoughts had been, instead of getting on YouTube, or instead of getting on Twitter, uh, you're already there looking at things. What if you just made that podcast place? the place where you post whatever you think is interesting from Twitter. You don't even have to comment right. on it. And there's already quite a few people there who I know will comment on it. And of course, listeners, if you're not there, this is my pitch, right? You could be there. Uh, as it is, Dr. Koontz will usually reply to you in the Mad Christian Discord on the A Brief History Power channel. So there's your there's your invite. What do you think of that idea? And or, you know, why aren't you on Twitter would be the other way to go with that if you just want to do that. 
Yeah, um, I mean, I I like the Discord idea because it's kind of easier to handle, and I can reply at much greater length yes. to people and personally, which I favor because I think 1850 was just a better year in Western civilization <laughs> than go. today. So obviously, um, obviously, I mean th- that needs no explanation. Please move on. Okay, and and so the reason I'm not on Twitter is basically because managing responses could be fun but I don't want to get extremely online and I could easily go there. Yes. And I just don't want to. And um, I have other things that I'm trying to do in life, like write books. And so uh, I just, I just can't do it. I don't, I don't have the capacity to do Twitter well and to do all the other things that I do, including coming up with the stuff that we do on here. Right. I know when you're yeah. there and you shared stuff, you find with me because we share interests. Yeah, right. Um, yeah. What you find is inspiring to me in the the best and the worst kind of way, the way news <laughs> from far away often is. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For my own part, it's helped me disengage though, as the show continues to be kind of a goal. Like we're, we're talking global, but we're pushing local, right. uh, you know, and so – and so, I, I mean, I love it for like the weird stuff or the interesting stuff that I pick up there, but I love it as a browser. I would not love it as a user. I would easily become captivated by it as right. a user, and I don't want to be captivated. Right. I, I don't engage at all in terms of really talking to people back and forth in it, because that would just yeah. be, that would be really, right. really intense, I think. Right. But so browsing it, because the, the, for me, the reason I've not given it up, although I want to, I don't like it. But I feel like I would then be cutting off really my one channel to uh, on-the-ground information from overseas about COVID all over the place, uh, yeah, about right. science yeah. on that matter particularly. And then it, it goes from there into other issues, but most mm-hmm. especially on real COVID information, um, yeah. papers and uh, you know videos of people testifying places. And I guess it yep. all could be faked by you – know, I don't <laughs> – and I think you're the bigger conspiracy theorist than me at this point, right? Um, what I like is being able to see this stuff, and I can't find it anywhere but Twitter. But then right. to be there and live there and talk there and, and have engagement, yeah. media ecology means these different platforms all have their own like way of learning. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, you know, I think Mark Hemingway said some of this on the election stream that we did. Um, you know, I'm not a journalist, and I'm not a leftist, so I don't need to be on Twitter to, from my job or to have my insane opinions reinforced right, so right yeah all right well i'm gonna encourage you to go ahead and start dropping stuff in that in that discord channel yep. just because i love what you throw me I'll, I'll throw it out here that video of the communist party having a good laugh at the expense of the u.s slowly falling <laughs> at, to their knees was really like wow they don't even right? wow um right. so all right uh let's see or cody moving on to cody uh Brief question that's two paragraphs about the latest history of power <laughs> episode. So it's from the December 3 episode. Uh, okay. uh, Rev Kuntz, when you said libertarian philosophy is abstract, were you referring to the political philosophy? It seems like it all boils down to property rights and the right to self-preservation, which goes hand in hand with both of our remarks on the pursuit of happiness. Mm-hmm. I don't see how that would be considered abstract. Yeah. Yeah. It's abstract in the sense that it is abstracted from the historical knowledge or considerations that I think are actually germane, not just to court cases, but to how and why certain liberties are what they are in different countries. So I, I don't I don't need to or want to boil something down. And this this is a larger critique of 
the role of philosophy in politics, that if you want to know sort of where I'm coming from on this and where I'm getting this and why I say this, this is how Edmund Burke critiques the French Revolution, not only because of specific things that it's doing, but because it believes that politics is a place where you enforce certain ideologies rather than a place where you make decisions for concrete common goods. And I am happy to say that, you know, large amounts of libertarianism align very much with concrete common goods. But I derive the reasons for those things and the existence of those things and the preservation of those common goods, such as civil liberties, let's say, from the Anglo-American political tradition, not from reasoning about, you know, man in a state of nature in the case of Locke, even though he's important for that political tradition, much less from Ludwig von Mises. So why are, why are liberties liberties or why are they natural or why are they here? You know, how would you explain that you have a right? Uh, I know for Americans, that's hard. You have to think, and there's a big word called mm -hmm. epistemology. It's a whole field of study that you didn't want to yeah. listen to in high school. Um, I, the, the most interesting thing that you said to me was, uh, all right, no, I didn't think you said this, but you turned that phrase boiling it down on its head, and it was, a, in my mind, a, a scathing critique of the modern mind, that you can sum up everything about the modern effort, experiment, as an attempt to boil life down. That's yeah. really what has been. Yeah. Um, I think it's stunningly profound on your part. So, Well, because when you when you talk about the rights of man or natural right, I can admit, theoretically, that you know, we have those in some sort of abstract state of nature with Locke. The issue is that man has never appeared in that way. Regardless of what your theory of how humankind came to be is, we have always existed in the context of relationships. I'm born into a family. I'm born into a certain lineage. I'm born in a certain place. And so I never exist in a state of nature. And I don't think mankind has ever done so. And so my whole life is a web of interrelationships that are historically determined. That's why we talk about history, because I think that's what actually matters, rather than saying man abstractly is this or that or the other thing. I like to imagine humanity as a tree, bear with me, um, where in the primordial Eve or Adam, whoever you want to pick, pick your mythology or religion, um, is a root. And throughout history, you see from this small seed, the root grows up and becomes thick and grows. And every generation after is kind of bringing forth the leaves as below it turns to wood. And that yeah. we're, in fact, that tied to each other. So as tied right. as wood in a, well, really, it's more like the living parts, right? The wood's the past. As tied as the, the ongoings within the leaf are to each other, so are you to your parents and your kids. And, that's, and, and I think that's actually generation theory in the Bible from that book, Pendulum, I was telling you about earlier, if I were to right. combine the two, that's the idea, in a metaphor. Do you want to say more about, he's going to ask a question about uh, Ludwig von Mises, so why don't I just take that next, because yeah, that goes yep. out of what you said. Are you too familiar with Dr. Robert Murphy or Dr. Thomas E. Woods Jr.? Both are Mises fellow, i.e. the Ludwig von Mises Institute Christians, and they are libertarians. I just ask because both you and Rev Kuntz seem to reach very similar genuine libertarian conclusions. Yeah, indeed, I think we probably do. I, yeah. I listen to tons of podcasts at work, so I can attest to that, especially considering you have called yourself a Ron Paul Republican. Yeah, that's me, and yes, uh, that's what I, I am at this point, if you had to peg me. Um, just, I'm, I'm mad is what I am. Uh, crazy. They, continuing on for him, just looking for some clarifications there. As I'm a small libertarian in the LCMS. Thanks so much for your time. Brilliant content, and may God continue to bless your mad Christian ministry. That's that's for my end. So, uh, 
a bunch of names, right? Uh, Ludwig yeah. von Mises Institute and the guy, and then mm -hmm. Thomas E. Was Jr., Robert Murphy. Um, I am ignorant of these things, so I look forward to okay. hearing your answer. Yeah, I mean, I'm very familiar with both of them, both Murphy's work, uh, which I think was with the Independent Institute at one time, um, and also Tom Woods. And I find their critiques of uh, government power in American history to be very helpful. And they're some of the only people that have preserved what was this, what we called earlier, Yankee progressive critique of power in America, um, because there is a very deep strain of what abstractly considered could be called libertarianism, what he called small L libertarianism in the email. And that's fine. I don't need to or want to derive those things from anything other than what has historically occurred with the American people, which is very similar to say the Dutch in uh, rural South Africa or the Australians on their frontier, which is when you get a frontier people, you get a much greater attachment to liberty in one's daily life than when you have a people who are long settled in one place or an urbanized people right. who are controlled by various other powers. Of course you do. And that's why I want to preserve those things. Um, when you've got because, to work for your daily yeah. bread, it, it right. has an impact on what you decide is important to do right. today. I'm not saying that that would work or be good necessarily for people in Shanghai. I don't know. And I don't want to dictate to them abstractly, philosophically, <laughs> what they should do. I know that, you know, in my country's history is the anti-mask league of San Francisco. Right. Yeah. So then you're not a libertarian. How would you define yourself politically? I am an American. And that means that a lot of the things that I think. Uh, hold on, and, hold on. Coots 2040 yeah. right there. Coots 2040. Here we go. I am, I am an American. Uh, <laughs> I am an American. And so that, you know, of course, my, my instincts are. And, and I, I don't know why, I, I think it's really sad that this get, got kind of mocked and memed as like America. Yeah, I, I find that, I mean, honestly, I find that disgusting because it's just a mockery of us, of my people and our instincts for freedom and to be left alone. These are all wholesome things and we work them out for ourselves. And when they get memed, that means that they're necessarily like stupid and silly. Whereas you don't, you don't, you're not allowed to make, you know, memes. You're not allowed to, I mean, people do make memes about people's claim to be, you know, oppressed by racism. And that's why they have COVID-19 or something, you know, so this got, this got memed, but what I am is simply someone who is trying to carry on the political traditions and thought and instincts as well. Burke is good on the, the role of feeling and instinct in politics that my people have always had uh, because of their historical experiences as a frontier people. They are a settler people. So I'm going to throw this out here. I think it comes out of what you just said. I think it in fact describes what you just said, although you did it in such a civil way that it will belie it a little bit and cause people challenges. But <laughs> if you would like to make a lot of money with a new uh, clothing wear company, uh, American Barbarian is what you want to do. I do it myself, but I don't have the time. I have too many good things to do. I will buy your t-shirts. I will promote your t-shirts. It's got to be good art. It's got to be masculine. Yeah. But American Barbarian, yeah. as a brand, to take back from the America deriders the fact that you can be from the hills and know a whole lot more than those people from the city. American Barbarian, yeah. we are your brand. Take it. I'll help you. I'll help you. I just want to wear it. Oh, man. Um, another another email here. Um, okay. Uh, well, let me get... Why don't you critique Ron Paul for me? Since 
Republicans. I, I've called myself a Ron Paul Republican. What mm-hmm. I mean by that is I am not a neocon uh, war hawk. I believe you should generally yeah. bring the boys home. I don't think isolationist is a fair criticism of anybody who's just trying no. to protect what's going on in the House. And right. uh, he voted no on lots of big government, and I'm all for that too. So, I, You know, I mean... I- Again, like because I don't think about life abstractly, I have no practical critique of Ron Paul. I mean, I'm sure I could find he wrote something and was too devoted to Mises or something. Yeah, but, sure. I mean, honestly, who cares? I mean, I, I I have a critique of the gold standard in American history, but that's that's too much for right now. I mean, practically, I love the man. I think he's great. We're both from Central Pennsylvania originally. You can tell whenever he opens his mouth, and he's got the accent still, and uh, that's great. I, I mean, I I. I think I I voted Constitution Party stupidly in 2012, but I should have voted for Ron Paul. So yeah. there you go. Yeah, yeah. That's the only time before this past year that I got politically active is I was putting stuff. It's out in Philadelphia, oh, New Jersey. I was putting flyers on windows all by myself, printing them myself. <laughs> there you go. Uh, stupid. I mean, it was, it was an exercise in learning how futile it is if you yeah, don't have the, the party on your there side. You go. Um, all right. So, uh, yeah, I think that, that cleared that up. So uh, one more email. Elusive man, Dr. Coons, last night my wife and I were watching a true crime show about a famous murder committed by the Klan in Mississippi in 1964. Uh, We noticed some of the disturbing similarities between the activities of the Klan and modern-day Antifa and BLM, notably these. Collusion with local law enforcement to look the other way for mob justice. Big-moneyed allied interests ready to bail people out instantly. Refusal Mm -hmm. by local authorities to prosecute manifest and obvious crimes that fall under their jurisdiction and therefore no one else able to claim the prosecution uh, and of course the one you're never supposed to mention both the clan and the modern antifa blm are the vigilante arms of the democrat party are these similarities only on the surface do they run through all authoritarian structures or is there a more unique connection between the democrat clan and the democrat antifa blm movement that needs exposure within say the dnc by all those really loving democrats who don't believe in this stuff i added that last part um so what do you think Okay. So, I mean, I think the association of the Democratic Party with illegal political violence is too easy um, because this is the way this is the way that political violence works where it is forbidden for whatever set of circumstances. So that's not really unique to the Democratic Party. And the other problem is that the idea that like, you know, the Democratic Party was the party of like slaveholders, blah, 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 blah. Okay. The Republican Party and its predecessors, free soil and stuff like that are part of illegal political violence on the part of abolitionists before the Civil War. So like okay, I'm okay. saying, this is, so, so you're saying not... let's pull back from the DNC. Let's pull that out of the question. I want to come back to it. But but to to join you on this, I'm going to ask the question differently. But yeah. I'm going to join you on yeah. what you just said. Yeah. I had my mind change about as much as it would change when I watched the Communist Party leaders seven minutes of deriding us and saying <laughs> they are so arrogant yeah. they will fall. Yeah. Um, and uh, wow, and and uh, take themselves down, laid it out yeah. anyway. Um, uh, oh, now I'm going to forget it because I went off on that one. Uh, <laughs> don't do this on the show, Jonathan. Uh, oh, oh, when I saw I saw Kamala Harris is probably two weeks ago, three weeks ago, video Kamala Harris walking by and fist bumping Mitch McConnell on the Senate floor. Yeah. Right. And I thought, I don't care who you are in the Senate. You're only one party. It's called right. the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. So there's kind of a there. Ted Cruz may be an exception, by the way. There's yeah, there's several there's several things going on when you're like taught by, I don't know, Prager or Ben Shapiro. I don't know who it is that like the issue here is the Democratic Party. That's not really the issue. And it's not kind of a trans historical reality about the Democratic Party. 
there's also a reason that you're, you get, you get stories about white political violence in the South. You never get stories about black political violence, whether, whether in Northern California in the seventies, you're, you're only going to get certain stories. And the reason you're going to get certain stories is because those stories are going to reinforce narratives that for instance, will lead you to vote for the Republican party. But if the Republican party is not in fact representing your interests, this is where I'm saying like with the anti-mask league, you have to look for your actual opinions and thoughts and desires to be represented or demand that they be represented. Don't wait for somebody to do that. And if you're being told that like, okay, the democratic party is always throughout time existentially evil, of course that's gonna force you to be a good Republican. Maybe that's not actually good for you, but that's where the narrative is pushing you. And that's, that's kind of my issue with it is that the reason that Antifa and BLM function the way they do is because yes, they are extra legal, political, politically violent arms. But the issue there is not that they're representative of Democrats. <laughs> it's that they're committing political violence. Hmm. Okay. And the reason that that's happening is because you always get this where you have a collapsing or indeterminate political order where what happens publicly is not what actually matters, which they, which they have in common with abolitionists in bleeding Kansas, as well as the Klan in the 1960s. So you just said, did I hear you right? What they're doing doesn't have a connection with what actually matters. Say that again. I, mean, I didn't catch that. What 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 is what is happening publicly? Elections. Uh, please vote in the Georgia Senate runoff. Blah 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 blah. The thing that you see when you realize that, like Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell, give Kamala Harris fist bumps on the Senate. That's floor, right. It was Lindsey Graham. I got it wrong. Is that you are seeing that what is happening publicly is not actually representative, even of what actually matters such as Portland being burned down. Hmm. Uh, there's another autonomous zone going up Yep. Uh, right now as we record it's, this. It's up North Portland. Yeah, that's right. North Portland is already there and they actually push the cops back with violence, if I'm not mistaken. These are the things, the things that are actually occurring are what matter. And what you can see when you have political violence in a variety of forms throughout our history, let alone other nations, is that that happens when we're not able to admit that something that the political order is collapsing and something has to be insured or brought about through violence. Okay. So you have very similar paramilitary groups anywhere and any time that a political order is collapsing and or being born. So which is which is always the question, right? Well, so the th I think, I think a significant question, if you know, you're listening to this and you're thinking, okay, well, is where is the Republican Party's paramilitary force? Because if I look at like revolutionary Russia or Germany after the First World War, everybody has his own paramilitary force. So if I'm, if I'm a Republican and I recognize what Antifa and BLM are, the thing I have to ask myself is, okay, well, who's protecting me and my interests? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a, you know, I completely am with you on this. But now BLM and Antifa are hitting way above their weight class, if I can put it this way. Um, I think that they move around, they can go to places, they can make themselves look really big, they can get on, yeah. on the internet. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, are they looking at being even 5,000 strong? Should they marshal? I, yeah. I don't know. That's, you know, yeah, that, and, and, that, that's a really good point because the equation that I made is not, it's true structurally, it's not true biologically or militarily. I mean, the communists in Germany after the First World War have physically fit men 
who are war veterans right. fighting for them. So then I saw, and I didn't, I retweeted this, and I don't like it because it's a step in the wrong direction. It's more violence. But I saw this was at a Washington State protest, I believe. Uh, there were some Trump supporters protesting. Antifa in riot gear tries to take the flag from them. Yeah. They get beaten back. They're in the riot gear. They get yep. beaten back and run away by the yep. flag. The guy's hitting them with the flag. <laughs> okay, and there's a crowd that jumps on too. But but the point is, like, so here's your riot gear, you know, ready to, ready to, to marshal, and they they can't even fight against people with some sticks. So Correct. there is this in that I think they're, uh, the Trump party, which I can't call the Republicans because I agree with you. Um, <laughs> right, the Trump yeah. party has been practicing for a long time. They shoot deer all the time. Um, mm -hmm. They're shooting all sorts of stuff all the time. And whether they're organized or not, I don't know. And whether I want to go out and join them, should they decide to, to stand up? I'm mm -hmm. pretty sure I don't want to because um, that's what wise men do is they avoid uh, you know needless battles without clear authorities driving you toward a better victory, right? A future. That's just going to be a mob yeah. fighting a mob. But all that's, I mean, I don't know. Now we're a, way, a long way from the original question of, you know, are these similarities to uh, the South in, um, you know, the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s? Uh, and then how do we, how do we respond? You know, what do we learn from this? So we went a long way from that. So can you pull us back to that? What are the yeah, Well, I mean, the, the issue is that what happens in the South and it had already happened in the 1950s is that desegregation of especially public schooling was enforced by the federal government. So you had the 101st airborne deployed to the South. So one of the decisive issues here, especially in America, that is probably only more docile and certainly less physically fit than it was in the 1950s and 1960s, is that the intervention of the federal government and the, the forces that it commands. And we saw this already in the rioting, the BLM rioting in Washington, because you had these really sketchy vehicles labeled like white SUVs labeled like U.S. police, right, which is not right, a thing. Right. Um, they were un almost undoubtedly private military contractors yeah. in the summer is that the intervention of those forces is probably going to be decisive. Yes. Private uh, military and no trials. Just remember that, too. This will be very much like uh, DCFS court is today, in fact. Yeah. Yeah. Please keep going. This is fun. I'm excited. So, so yeah. So I, I think that that is the $64,000 question in America's immediate political future is the intervention of all of these men, some of whom are still, you know, enlisted under the service of the federal government right. in different agencies and, and branches of the military, and some of whom are not enlisted, but may be paid, is that we have an enormous reserve after 19 straight years of war of men trained for war yep. and their, their decisions and their grouping and who commands them and who can pay for them is for me, a massive question. I just it don't is. know. It's the next 10 years yeah, and right. it's who they, I mean, does when it's forced to decide when the top brass Pentagon has to fight with itself because everything else is too broken. Right. Um, that'll be a telltale time. Right. And then, and then who right. follows who, how much does that fracture? Do you have uh, post-Alexander, right? I mean, right. why not worldwide? I mean, I don't know if I'm an elite and I'm like a third-generation elite. I don't know if it's all falling down. Uh, you know, It would have made sense for Alexander's generals to work together. They didn't. You know? They didn't. <laughs> so, so I don't know. I mean, correct me. I'm, a, yeah. I'm only yeah. one student of history, and you are clearly yeah. more than I am. So I want to be bounded in my thoughts, not, not encouraged. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, well, the the collapse of Alexander's empire is is because it just it was too big and it relied on personality. Does that was, sound familiar to you? There you go. So, <laughs> so after that, you get successor states. You also have successor wars. So yeah, we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, we got we got a question from inside the house. First, be the hand asked sure. this one. I, I didn't really see it before. Dr. Kunz, you did not quite finish your thoughts about Judith Miller and the search for yeah. WMDs in Iraq. Maybe yeah. there's nothing more to it. And she's just an Australian anyway. You know, they're in lockdown. What's she going to do to you if you don't answer? So, Poor Australians. <laughs> um, going back to being a penal colony. Judith Miller is interesting as a study in what journalism's role is. And I, I've increasingly come to see the media as basically, right? So what's the difference between 1793 and, you know, 2020? is that the media has replaced preachers. Mm. Um, they condition mm. people's emotions. They condition people's reactions. They condition people's thought structures. Yeah. And Judith Miller is just an interesting case study in a really successful preacher, if you want to put it that way, in that she has an illustrious career, I think largely with the New York Times. And she is instrumental in sending us into Iraq because you know it's generally forgotten that the left broadly conceived are the people who are most supportive of these foreign wars really going all the way back to world war one at least and so so judith miller is just if you want to look up her career and learn more about her she is one of the people who's most diligent and fervent in reporting you know uh, iraq has weapons of mass destruction blah 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 and that's how we get there because at the time we all believed okay not all of us i didn't but most how, of the how American population. You? How old were you? I was. This is if you want to prove your genius right now. It is this right? You saw I was that then. Seven. I was seventeen. God bless when we you, went Adam. Into a, God Iraq. bless you. But yeah. I was. I was watching C-SPAN. That's what I was watching on TV. So. And you That's... knew, but you knew the details. You're like, I don't buy it, right? And the rest of us, I listened to Colin Powell. Colin Powell. Well, he's I a was, black man. He's I the future know. of America. We're, we got. We got racial peace. That's what I've been trained to believe. Well, and he, he says weapon of mass destruction. We got to go. He, little did we know that the first Jamaican president would be Kamala Harris, not Colin Powell. Yeah, right. Well, that I mean, if they found the weapons, <laughs> wouldn't he have been? I think he would have been, honestly. Yeah, I think so, right? So, yeah, well, Condoleezza Rice was a similar, had a similar trajectory at one time. But, yes. But, I mean, yeah, I, I've always been suspicious of people in power, so that... I, I I don't claim I don't I don't claim any credit. For I'm that. more just, of an optimist than you. I'm I think that's genetic or something. Why so, Why are we not suspicious of people in power? I don't know. I'll credit my father. You know, in this case, I don't know if my dad listens, but um, I don't know. I mean, I, I I don't know. I mean, part of it has to do with media consumption. That's a big thing that I recognize this year, but right. I don't really know. Right. Right. The, if so, the box is telling you how to think, then you're right. not going to think straight. Right. And you can do whatever you want with that. Uh, Brief History of Power with two white guys. Dr. Adam Koontz, he's at Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You can find him on the Mad Christian Discord inside the A Brief History of Power channel where there's all sorts of hootenanny going on. And apparently yep. he'll be dropping some of that that deep, dark Twitter stuff that he finds. Uh, I don't even know how you find these guys, but they're, they're great. Some of the best philosophy I've come across. Strange places. Yeah, indeed. Strange places. Um, I am Jonathan Fisk. I am the Mad Christian. I am a pastor in Rockford, Illinois, and I am concerned about making sure my children have meat to eat 40 years from now. So that's my endeavor, my skin in the game. What's yours? A Brief History of Power. It's time to get on board, take some notes, and we'll catch you all next time. 